Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Welcome to uh, Mission Church's candlelight service, our second ever candlelight service. Come on now. Come on. Uh, turn your neighbors and Merry Christmas. Okay, thank you, 10 people. This is going to be great. Great, great. Uh, I watched my favorite Christmas movie this week to get in the mood, uh, Die Hard. Come uh, on now. John McClane had plans, and uh, it, it stands the test of time, 1988. It was a great movie. If uh, you don't watch uh, action movies like that, you think they're sinful, forgive me. But it was awesome. It was awesome. Um, Home Alone is my second favorite, if you're wondering what my second favorite is. And then Elf, okay? I uh, love Elf. I love Elf. Somebody shout out another favorite Christmas movie real quick. Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation, that's a good one. What's another one? The Holiday? The Holiday with Cameron Diaz. You know what? That's underrated. It's a good one. I, I think it's underrated. I agree. I think it's, I think it's very good. Yeah. Like, I like that movie. Like, it's, it's great. Jack Black's in it. Yeah, it's fantastic. One more, one more. It's a Wonderful Life. That's on my top five, too. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. How, how can you not pick Charlie Brown, right? So many great Christmas movies. It's a great time of year, and uh, we get to give gifts and receive gifts, and uh, we come to candlelight service. And, and my, my heart today, as I uh, unpack the message, and believe it or not, it's going to be a 25-minute message today because of candlelight. What? Yeah. Never been under 30 minutes in my life. This will be the first time. It's going to be amazing. So if you're brand new, uh, if you like short sermons, you're welcome. Uh, if you love, because I preach like 45, 50 minutes tier, okay? Uh, just watch the message twice. It'll be 50 minutes long, okay? Um, I'll preach it. Go home, watch YouTube. 50 minutes. There you go. Uh, let's, uh, let's open up the Bible to Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 6 and 7. I'm going New King James Version. Yeah, I'm going intense today. I'm taking this thing for real. Uh, we're going King James, old school. Here we go. Uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Stop. Right there. There's the meaning of Christmas. A son was given. He was given as a gift to mankind to give us a new hope when there was no way to make a way, to give us a gift of uh, a hope in a dark world, a light in a dark place, joy in a world that has a lot of despair. What an amazing thing that God gave his only son for you and I. This is the, the gift of all gifts. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Woo! I'm going to give you a bonus uh, content in this message. Uh, um, this is like the director's cut that would have, would have been cut out, but I'm just going to give it to you. Wonderful counselor. I want to just talk to anybody real quick. Uh, Christmas is one of the most joyful times, but it's also a really depressing time for a lot of people. We have to understand that. And um, What I love about the Lord is he's the greatest counselor. I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm not a licensed counselor. But what I have been told by counselors and therapists is uh, uh, the ones that are really great are ones that have been through what those people are going through. So if you've been abused and the counselor has actually been through abuse also, they can actually identify with what you're feeling because they've been through it, and they can walk you to the other side of victory because the person counseling you has experienced what you're experiencing. Those are great counselors. Well, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and just so you know, he has experienced everything you've experienced and then some. If you're somebody who says, well, well I, I've had big prayers not answered, Jesus say, yeah, me too. The prayer of Gethsemane, I prayed, and it was not answered. I had, I had to obey, and I didn't have that prayer answered. I, I can identify with that. I can walk you to the other side of what it looks like for unanswered prayers because when you pray sometimes, trust me, God knows, the Father knows best. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody and you don't know how to get through betrayal? Man, Jesus has been betrayed. Let him walk you to the other side of victory. 
If you've ever tasted just terrible darkness, man, this is the things Jesus has been through. And guess what I love about Jesus? He didn't end there. He ended on the other side, and he wants to take you to the other side. Does that sound good? That's bonus content. You're welcome. Let's pray. Um, it's not even a part of the message. I just feel like some people need to know that Jesus wants to walk you to the other side, all right? Uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. Thank you for uh, just today's candlelight service, Lord. Uh, Lord, what it represents, that you are the light of the world, Lord, that when the, there was no hope, you became hope. Lord, when there was no way, you became the way. When there was only death, you became life. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift uh, of your son. Uh, Lord, we love you. We love you. And everybody said? Okay, so one of my favorite authors, uh, apologists, theologians, uh, scholars, is a guy named Timothy Keller. He's still alive today. He's, I think he's just a brilliant mind. Read anything he has. I just love it. Uh, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I believe it's in his book or a, a blog. I've read so much of his stuff, so sometimes I merge them. But he talks about uh, in marriage that it takes you five to ten years to get to know your spouse. Five to ten years. And most marriages only last seven years. So I, just, just hold on. Just hold on. You don't even know him yet, you know? So, so five to 10 years it takes. And, and I can actually attest to this because I'll never forget it. Uh, Rachel and I, last Christmas, I thought I should share a Christmas story at Chris, Christmas service. Does that sound good? You're welcome, okay? Um, so we, uh, we decided to stay home for the very first time and celebrate Christmas together. Usually because my parents live in Seattle and her parents live in LA, we'd always fly to one of our parents and celebrate Christmas. But this Christmas, like, you know what? We just planted the church. Uh, we, uh, we have Christmas service right before Christmas, basically. Let's stay home and let's just celebrate Christmas. So then that month, we went shopping at the outlets. I said, whatever you want to get this day, these are Christmas presents. So she, oh, she buys a bunch of stuff for Christmas for herself. I buy some stuff for myself for Christmas. It's an awesome thing. So we buy our, our gifts. And then um, I get us Warrior tickets for Christmas Day against LeBron James and the Lakers, right? Awesome Christmas Day. Uh, am, I, am I right? Yeah, right? Magic. And so, uh, so I buy, I, and I get his killer seats. Like I, I got us the killer deal, five rows back from the Lakers bench, so I could see LeBron. And this was actually. Do you guys remember the Warriors were good? Do you remember those days? Let's just take a moment. What happened? No, I'm a Warriors. I'm, I'm with you guys. Just getting all these bad texts to my friends. You know, they're just blowing me up now. Are you still a Warriors fan? Yes, I'm still a Warriors fan. Have you been to a game yet? No, no way. <laughs> but I'm still a fan, you know? So this is when the Warriors were awesome. They used to have a dynasty. And, uh, and so, and so we, go, we really wanted to go. And so KD and Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, a bunch of Warriors you haven't seen for a while. Anyways, uh, they're on this team. We go to the game, and I think we're having the best Christmas day ever. I've been married my wife for six years. I think I'm killing it. I think she's loving it. I think like, you know, it's like, ah. And so anyways, we get back to the house, and Rachel, again, we, we decided to not give each other presents because we went shopping. Shopping was our present to each other. So no gifts on, on, on Christmas Day. We already, we already bought our gifts. So Rachel likes to be a rule breaker and she gives me a gift. And I open it up and it's unbelievably thoughtful. I mean, I'm talking like thoughtful, thoughtful. Charles Spurgeon is my favorite author and it's this commentary on David, who's David's one of my favorite, of course, you know, uh, people in the Bible, of course. And it's commentary on David from Charles Spurgeon. These old books that like basically like she got off of eBay that like are just like collector items of Spurgeon's commentaries and I open it up and I was like, and it's one of those moments when I'm opening, I'm like, I am in so much trouble. I did not buy Rachel's gift. <laughs> not only did she give me a gift, but she got me this like super thoughtful gift. And I was like, thank you. And it was all over, and there was nothing to give. And so I was like, all right, you know, still, it's a great day, da, da, da. And I walk by uh, the bathroom, and I hear, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then tell you I was going to share a good Christmas story. I just need to tell you, I just told you I was going to share a Christmas story, all right? And so, so I walk by, and I'm like, Rachel? And she's like, yeah. I was like, are you okay? I am fine. I was like, Rachel, I, I think I can hear you crying. Like, let me in. She's like, okay. She opens the door. I was like, what's wrong? And she's like, 
today's not magical, you know? And I was like, the Warriors are magical, okay? You know, I feel like we're having a little disconnect here, you know? And it's like, I just, I thought, you know, you would have, you know, presents and you just be more magical and it's just not, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, sweetie, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought I nailed it today and I, I guess I just totally missed it. And, and so we'd redeem the day. We started a fire and we watched one of Rachel's favorite Christmas movies that she wanted to watch. And um, it, it became really, really sweet. And so this Christmas, this Christmas, there are presents under the tree, okay? Many of presents, not one, not two, not three, not four. We're talking there are presents under the tree to Rachel from Tyler, and they're big time. I'm telling you, I went into my savings account, okay? Because uh, I know my girl more than I did the year before. Now, the reason why Timothy Keller says it takes five to 10 years to get you to know your spouse is because he says we, we don't do a very good job of allowing our spouse, spouse to self-define themselves. And self-defined is this term he uses, and what it means is simply this, is that when you're hanging with your spouse for years, you basically define them from your own perspective. So you, you love going to burgers. So you eat burgers all the time. You're like, my, my wife loves burgers, you know? But then your wife's like, no, I don't love burgers. I love you, and so therefore I eat burgers because you eat burgers all the time. Like, you never, let me, you never, never asked me if I like burgers. I just eat burgers. And so he says one of the biggest frustrations in marriage is just not allowing each spouse to self-define themselves. And so now if you could just understand how you do this is a little, I've been sharing some marriage tips lately in the last month. Rachel and I are going to counseling and I'm learning these myself. Uh, we probably should, uh, everybody needs counseling. But anyways, uh, here's how, just another little free uh, marriage tip. Sit down, ask your spouse to self-define themselves, what they love and what grieves them. And when they say it, turn this instrument on, it's called your ear, listen to it, okay? And then guess what you should do? You should do what they said, okay? So let's just use a simple thing, okay? Uh, if my wife drank wine, she doesn't because it's sinful, but she did, um, she would want to drink a Pinot Noir over a cap, okay? If she did drink wine, but we don't drink wine if you think it's sinful. But if you're like a member at a winery, we would go with you, okay? And we would hang out with you, okay? Anyways, anyways. So if my wife told me she loves Pinot, it's her favorite, and I go get her a Merlot or a cab, She'd be like, but I just told you I like Pinot. Like, it'd be, there'd be a disconnect. And, and really, what, what, if I could just tell you what worship is, it's giving the Lord his Pinot. It's giving the Lord exactly what he asked for. Not what you self-perceive. We've got to allow the Lord to self-define himself. And too many people in the church today are defining Jesus from their own assumptions, from something they heard from afar, and really what Christmas represents is that God made the word become flesh to self-define the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nobody gets to define Jesus except Jesus. And so there was this kind of like thought of who God was and what he should be and what he should be in our life. And so there's this amazing verse in John 1. I want to read it to you. It's a powerful verse in John 1. We read a little bit of it uh, um, last week. Um, but it's kind of where I've been camped out lately just because you look at Matthew and Luke. And I was studying, you know, left and right for the last few weeks. Of, should, I, should I share Matthew? Because Matthew, it's all the facts about the, about the um, Christmas story. You got the manger. You got the virgin. You got the baby. You got the old wise men. You got all of it. You just got the whole story. You got the lineage of, you know, son of da-da-da, son of, leading all up to it. Um, you got John the Baptist, Elizabeth, cousins. I mean, it's all the facts about Christmas. But then God uses John not to share any of the facts. You will not find the manger, you will not find the baby, you will not find the wise men. You just find out the meaning of Christmas, of why he came, of why he came to this earth. And it's, it's so profound, and I hope I can unpack it well enough in the next 15, 18 minutes. But here's what it says of why he came. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we behold his glory, the glory as the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everybody say, full of grace and truth. And what happens a lot is you'll go to a church and you're like, oh, my God's a gracious, relational God. I can do whatever I want. And so I do whatever I want. And I live whatever way I want. I date whatever way I want. I use my money any way I want. I use my body for whatever way I want. I use my language for whatever way I want. And you do whatever because he's a relational, gracious God, and he just loves having you around. You have self-defined God, and what you're doing, you're grieving him. Because he's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And if you think that you can live a sinful life and please the Lord, you are missing it. Just like me grieving my wife last Christmas, it's the same thing that can happen Christmas after Christmas if you live your Christian walk to your own ideas instead of actually what he's trying to tell you. So how, how does that happen? How, how do we actually find out what he's like? Because some of you actually, maybe you actually think God's this angry God and that's why you stay away from him. You think he's so frustrated, he's quick to anger, he wants you to do this and this and all these hoops. You can't go to any secular concerts because if you go become a Christian, everything that's secular is evil. So you couldn't go to like the Jonas Brothers. I just want to release you. Go do the Jonas Brothers concert, okay? As your pastor, okay? Go ahead, you know? Uh, I'm so jealous. Okay, anyways, and so... Uh, go for it, okay? Like, um, but they're literally, I, I would go to churches and they would tell you like, stay away from this song, even that beat is evil. You know, I'm like, what is going on right now? So, so they were full of truth and like, no, 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 but no grace. My, my hope today as we look at who Jesus is and really what Christmas is about, because it's all about Jesus, is that we would see this amazing picture of a gracious, loving, passionate God that loves you and hates sin. Sin destroys his people. Our way destroys our life. I just, if I could just use a couple stories real quick, just to even um, kind of rabbit trail in a good way, uh, just read, start reading the Bible. Because here's why you need to read the Bible. The word became flesh. Let's unpack that real quick. The only way you get to know somebody, really get to know somebody, to, I mean, really get to know them. It's not from afar. It's the, the closest way to get to know somebody is when you actually get to hear their words. And what I mean by that is like, say you really didn't know me and you saw me drinking coffee and the next day I was drinking tea, next day I was drinking coffee and then coffee and then tea. And so you have these assumptions about me. And so for Christmas, guess what you get me? You get me a bunch of different teas that are like, you know, like Earl Grey and, and uh, you know, chamomile tea because you saw me drinking tea. But you actually never talked to me. And if you did ask me, guess what? You want to know why I drink tea? It's when coffee ran out. It's the only reason why I'm going to drink tea. Only reason. I want coffee every time. But you never talked to me. So you kind of you thought you knew me because you saw me act a certain way. You saw me drink some tea. But the only reason I was drinking tea is because I ran out of coffee. I love coffee, specifically Intelligentsia and Blue Bottle, if you're ever going to get me some, okay? Blue Bottle, Intelligentsia. Can I get an amen? Come on now. Um, and what happens with us, with people, and with the Lord is that we have this idea of God the Father. But God was so gracious, I'm going to give them my word. They're going to get to know me personally. The word will become flesh and they will not be confused anymore of what I want and what I desire and what the greatest gift to me is. They'll know exactly what I desire. And that becomes true worship is when we bring God our life and we give him everything because that's what he really wants he desires. It's an amazing picture. The other, the other part of this whole word uh, defining self is so now Jesus is on the scene. And people have ideas of who God is. Pharisees have ideas. People who don't know the Lord are far away have an idea. And just a few stories. If you just start reading the Bible a little bit, you'll see Jesus self-define himself. One of the stories that always blows my mind is this story where these uh, uh, friends, uh, four friends, grab their friend who's paralyzed, cut a hole in the roof, drop him down, and of course he gets healed. But that's actually not the thing that blows my mind. This is Jesus self-defining himself in this moment. You ready for this? The man is laying there, says nothing. And do you know what Jesus says to him? Your sins are forgiven. 
Pause. You got to understand this real quick. I read scripture and I go, for you to be forgiven of sins, you need to repent of your sins. You need to confess with your mouth. You need to believe that he is Lord and then you will be saved. That, 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 that's, I read the Bible and I'm going, hold on a second, Lord. He doesn't say anything you forgive his sins. This, this shows me one thing about God. He is quicker to forgive than you are quicker to sin. He is so quick to forgive. He must have seen just the repentance in the man's eyes or in his spirit and his thoughts. He didn't even have to say it. He saw the desire of brokenness saying, I, I, want, it, I want to be made whole. I want to be forgiven. He can't even say it because he doesn't even know how to articulate it. But God is such a kind God. He forgives him where he's at. That is Jesus self-defining himself. That will make a lot of religious people angry. And that's what happened in that moment. Because the religious people will say, the only way you can really get forgiveness is this way right here. No, no, you get forgiveness through Jesus and he'll do it any way he wants. Because he's Jesus, I'm not, you're not. Sound good? Okay, cool. Um, another one. Okay, we're a clapping service. I got no claps last service, so thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, second story, uh, this is self-defined and very simple. Is this Samar- the woman at the Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well? It's just Jesus self-defining himself, and like, in the best way. He just says to her really quick, and this is a famous story, so I'll, I'll, make, it, I'll make it short. He says to her really simply, he goes, man, if you actually knew who I was, if you knew the, the definition of who I was, you would not be looking anywhere else for water because I would be living water to you and I would satisfy you on a way that you've never been satisfied. Jesus self-defining himself that the world will never, ever meet your needs. I will meet your needs. Again, you read your Bible, you start to go like, man, like when I start to feel empty, when I start to feel doubt and depression, it is interesting. It's when I feel like I'm farthest away from my God. When I feel the most empty, it's when I feel the farthest away because Jesus has self-defined himself as I am the one that satisfies your soul. Another one of my favorite ones is Jesus defines himself not as Mr. Rogers. A lot of people who come to church or have been to church, they picture Jesus as this Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor? You know, like this just like really chill guy. But then Jesus sees this church being used to literally just absolutely um, uh, exploit people. And so he makes a whip, flips tables, and drives them out and says, my house will not be used for this. It is a house of prayer. Again, self-defining the purpose of the church. Can I give you a heads up real quick? You don't self-define yourself with Jesus. He self-defines you. That's what's so great about this. Now, now that's, that's the word becoming flesh. That's just a handful of things. You will never get to know Jesus unless you read the word. You can have ideas about God, but you actually want to hear God talk? Just read your Bible out loud. Problem solved. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it. Find out who God is. Let him self-define himself. I've got three quick points. One is uh, Christmas uh, reminds us that it's the end of religion. Christmas is the end of religion. That's one of the first things we're going to learn about this, how Jesus defines it. Second thing is, is that Christmas, we get new clothes on Christmas. Who wants some new gear on Christmas? Come on now. Uh, And then last but not least, Christmas reminds us that uh, we need a great light. We need a great light. So Christmas is here to end religion. What does that even mean? Let me just unpack this real quick. So Jesus comes, lives his life, comes as a baby, uh, as a gift, and then dies on a cross. And then this movement of the church happens, the movement of Christianity happens. And can you imagine... um, if you're somebody who doesn't know about this Christianity thing, but you know about religion. And so they go, oh, great, a new religion. Oh, great, there's a new religion. Now, why would you think there's a new religion? Because everything that you've known from this point is everything is religious. Every, every process is religious. Every process has litur- uh, liturgical uh, commitments. And the tabernacle is an interesting thing in the Old Testament that shows the religious activities in the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, Jesus was a, God was a pillar of fire, uh, a big old cloud of smoke. I mean, you name it. But then in the New Testament... He is this little baby in a manger. So one is very like fearful to enter into. Moses couldn't even enter into the presence of God, it says in the Old Testament. He would, he would die from it. But then God closes the gap with a little baby named Jesus that is approachable, that is vulnerable, that is easy to access. 
It's an amazing picture of what he's doing here. And he's not abolishing the law, but he's fulfilling the law. He's closing the gap that the law and you and I can never close. And so, so when it says he came and dwelt among us, can I just give you that Greek word? Actually, it doesn't translate very well for us. The Greek word is he tabernacled among us. And again, you got to unpack tabernacle, so forgive me, but let me do a little bit of teaching real quick. He tabernacled among us. So the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. Well, you go to the Old Testament, there's a tent. And in that tent, there is the Holy of Holies, there's a veil, and there's a tabernacle. The best way I can describe a tabernacle, forgive me, this is not being insulting, it would be like a little house, like a little like miniature God house where God lived in. Okay, can I put it that way? That's basically what it was like, the most simple form for me to explain, tabernacle. So it was this little house, uh, basically, that you could say is a little house, where God's presence would live in. And the priests would have sacrifices, and you could never go in there. If you went into the presence of God, and you were not perfect, you would die like that. Because bottom line, God's perfect presence cannot hang out with sin. It destroys sin, and we are sin. So therefore, you would be destroyed. You making sense? So therefore, the tabernacle, Moses' desire was to encounter the presence of God. He says, you can't, it would destroy you. Moses' desire is what we get every Christmas. It's what we get every day now, the presence of God because Jesus closed the gap. And so this word tabernacle is really saying he tabernacled among us is he ended religion and started a relationship. Here's what I mean by that. Can you imagine if you're somebody you know, in the book of Acts and they say, okay, what's this new religion? So, so where's your temple? Where's your temple for this new religion? Uh, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And actually, uh, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm the temple. They'd be like, what? Okay, hold on. So the second question, then. well, where's your priest? Well, Jesus is the high priest. And to be honest, all of us are now priests. Like, I'm a priest, can you believe it? Says, I'm, or I'm a royal priesthood. You're welcome. Nice, nice to meet you. Hold on, you're a priest. Yeah, we're all priests now. What? What kind of, what is this? You know? and, then, and then they ask, well, where do you do your sacrifices? Oh, oh we, don't, we don't do sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice. Well, hold on a second. So, so what is this then? What kind of religion is this? It's no religion at all. Because God didn't give us a religion. He gave us a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus ended religion and started relationship. This is the amazing picture that, that on Christmas we have to remind ourselves that when you wake up on Christmas morning, everything that basically was a burden to mankind, Jesus lifted it and gave you this relationship to enjoy. We say it all the time, church should not be endured, but it should be enjoyed. I think a relation with Jesus should never be endured, it should be enjoyed. Don't get me wrong, the, the world we're going to have to endure through trials, endure through pain, but your relationship with Jesus should be enjoyable. He's an enjoyable God. Is it making sense? Amen? Let's keep going. So, uh, second point, Christmas reminds us that we get new clothes, a new robe. Um, anybody excited to get like a new like, you know, swaggy shoes? Any, anybody like that kind of stuff? Yes? Okay, awesome. Um, I am pretty chill. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, okay, never mind. Uh, rabbit trail. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Uh, Genesis 3, uh, uh, verse 6. Let's go, let's go here. This is the beginning of why we need new clothes. This is why we need Christmas, if I could put it that way. This is like the biggest reason why we need Christmas, if I could say that. Uh, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave, to her hus- uh, gave, uh, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees on the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? Now, can I just give you a heads up? God knows where man is. Do you know that God, when he asks you where you are, he's not asking geographically, he's asking you spiritually. And that's, that's something you should always, where, where am I in this season of my life with the Lord? Am I distant? Am I living for myself? Where am I? I think that's a question God is always calling out to his people. Anyways, this is what the man says. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Stop. 
Uh, back in the day, uh, you guys remember this thing called ch uh, channel surfing? Uh, it's crazy, but who still channel surfs? Anybody still channel surf? A few of you? So I don't channel surf anymore because Netflix, you don't channel surf. You just go like this for like two hours trying to find something. Am I right? Um, and then what do we land on? Friends, office, you know what's up. Um, this is, this is, this is the, the, the curse of Netflix. And so um, now there's Disney Plus, even more uh, decisions to be made. But back in the day, we used to channel surf. And I remember Rachel and I, we just got married, moved up uh, to the Bay Area, and I was channel surfing, and this show came on, and it was the weirdest show ever. It was titled Naked and Afraid, okay? Anybody seen the show? Yes, yes, yes. Don't worry, they blur out the nakedness in it, you know. Uh, so Rachel and I were ch uh, channel flipping. I was like, what's going on right now? Found out we stumbled upon a Naked and Afraid marathon, watched the whole first season in a day. You're welcome. Um, I was just fascinated by these people. Like, what? Why would you do this? You only get paid five grand for the show, that's it. $5,000 for the show. Some of them get like diseases where like they're like affected for the rest of their life, okay? So what happens on this show is these people are dropped off in the middle of nowhere, naked and afraid, okay? <laughs> and they're given one little tool and they have to survive. And you know what's fascinating about all of them? They all do the same thing in the very beginning. They cover themselves. Because there's a number of reasons why. One is just simply there's like a shame in it. Like I'm naked in front of, I don't, I don't want people to see my nakedness. And so they go get leaves or branches. And I mean, again, it's just, it's comical because it doesn't really work, you know. You can tell it's not comfortable and, and you get to walk a little slower because I mean, it's like, you know, branches and leaves, you know. So anybody's running, they're like, I'm so glad we're here. Right? You know, I mean, it's just terrible, okay. And then, and then not only that, why they cover themselves is just the conditions of the environment they're in. Do you know if you have no clothes and no sunscreen, the sun is going to absolutely torture your skin? It's terrible. Or how about bugs? Bugs are going to absolutely attack you. You have nothing to protect yourself. So there's nothing to protect you and nothing to cover what needs to be covered. Now, let me just show you this real quick. In the Old Testament, when mankind first entered shame, when shame entered the picture, their first inclination was to cover themselves. And now, I would never go on the show Naked Afraid. No way, not for five grand, not even for 50 grand. Five million, I'll think about it. But, <laughs> but not for five, not for, but five, maybe. Now, we as like a people, none of us, none of us would say we're living naked and afraid. It's an interesting term to say. But Genesis 3 shows the real first salvation moment in all the Bible. He tells Adam and Eve that the, the seed of Jesus is going to come through Eve. And, and Adam, the salvation moment, scholars say that Adam actually receives this promise and says yes to salvation. One of the ways that we see this is that he could have named uh, his wife anything, but Eve means life. So he named Eve life, the promise that life would still go on, that death would not end mankind. And so there's this promise of salvation. Adam believes it. And then there's this little moment that I read at the very end I want to read to you again. And, and this is, the, again, the, the, the first salvation moment. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. An innocent animal had to die to clothe Adam and Eve for their sin. Something innocent had to die to cover their shame. Because they didn't do a very good job of covering themselves. If you've ever actually held a fig leaf, they're very uncomfortable, they're very prickly, they're a terrible thing to wear, okay? But sin makes you stupid, okay? So, so this is what happens. Now, I have no idea in this room how you're trying to cover yourself right now. I have no idea how you're trying to cover yourself. But all of us are trying to cover ourselves with something or some action or some success or some house or some car. Maybe you're trying to cover yourself with a spouse because if you can get the right person, then it validates you and you're, there's less shame on you because now this person covers you and endorses you. They'll maybe define you. Maybe it's a promotion. You want to cover yourself with a promotion. None of these things will suffice for the rest of your life. They will never protect you the way they need to protect you. They will never, ever guard you the way they're supposed to guard you and they'll never redeem you the way they're supposed to redeem you. 
It even says this in Isaiah. It says, even the best garments that you can produce in this world, the best steeds, here's what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Stop. Throughout the Bible, Zechariah, Isaiah, Luke 15, there are garments associated with salvation. Basically, the best salvation garments we can come up with on our best days are filthy rags. They do nothing to cover us. They still make us stink as human beings. But Luke 15, God self-defines himself. That the prodigal son runs, excuse me, the prodigal son walks home and the father runs to the prodigal son. The prodigal son does nothing to deserve it, but gets a brand new robe, the robe of salvation, the father's robe. He gets clothed by the father with his clothes, aka he who knew no sin became sin so we could be clothed with a righteous robe. You get new clothes. That's what Christmas represents. You get a new righteous robe. And so if you ever feel shame or discouraged or doubt, all these things, you're wearing the wrong clothes. If you ever feel arrogant and prideful for what you accomplish, you're wearing the wrong clothes. Because guess what? If you have succeeded this season, that's by the grace of God. That's by the sovereign promised grace of God of why he's clothed you to succeed. And if you've gone through anything terrible, guess what? God's bigger than that. You are clothed in robes of righteousness. My, my, my worst days don't define me. My best days don't define me. Jesus defines me. But isn't it, yeah, you can clap for that one. That's pretty good. That's all right. That's all right. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, catch this real quick. It, it's fascinating because all of us have something to define us. All of it. And a lot of it is associated with how we dress or what we have in our life. But man, the one thing that you need more than anything in your life is just the robe. It's just the new clothes. And you can wear it every day. The Bible talks about this being hidden in Christ. You can walk in the tabernacle, be seen as perfect from God. Your, your sins are farthest from the east from the west. It's an amazing gift. And last but not least, conclusion, Christmas reminds us that we need a great light. We need a great light. Now, Isaiah, real quick, uh, I think uh, in Isaiah 9, the, the verse that gets all the love is, uh, you know, unto us a child is born. You know, and his name will be, you know, mighty God, counselor, all, all that, all, all of the above. It's an amazing, powerful thing in Isaiah 9. But it actually starts in the very beginning of Isaiah 9. And this is a, a thing basically where there's oppression, uh, sin is going to destroy mankind. And this is what it says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Christmas reminds us of how great God is and how bright he is, but also reminds us how dark the world is. If you don't think the world is dark, just watch the news for five minutes. If you don't think the world is dark, just walk a school campus for five minutes. It's a dark place where the enemy wants to destroy mankind. That's just the reality of the world right now. But it says that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Jesus comes on the scene, self-defines himself, and he says, I am the light. Now pause. Now this prophecy that is being spoken to mankind when Jesus is birthed, there's two types of people at this time. There are the, the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks think that they can find light. They can find hope in academics. You'll see this throughout history when you study them. Basically, they give all their resources, all their time, all their bandwidth to becoming the smartest and the brightest people. And they thought if we become smart enough, if we become bright enough, then the world will actually be a better place and we will make this place a bright place. They were trying to manufacture light. It never worked out. And then the Jewish people this time thought, if we could just have a great leader, if we could just have a great government, if we could just have a great politics, if the political landscape of this area was better, we could manufacture a great light through a political leader. We want politics. And what happened at this moment in the time when Jesus was being born is that two groups were trying to manufacture light. In the midst of them trying to manufacture light, God birthed this great light named Jesus. And if I could just be honest, I have no idea in our culture today what the great lights are. 
that people are trying to manufacture. To be honest, I think some of it's political. We think that we can actually change everything through a political leader. And we don't need a revival in the White House. We need a revival in the church house. I'm just gonna be honest. Doesn't mean that we don't care about politics. Doesn't mean we don't pray about our leaders. Doesn't mean that we're not informed. Doesn't mean that we don't vote. Doesn't mean that we're not passionate about it. I'm just letting you know real quick, the thing that's gonna change the world is not a better political system, but the church becoming everything it's supposed to be to this broken world. Second thing, I, uh, actually, I'll, I'll read it to you. Bob Dylan, uh, there's, there's this famous uh, concert called Live Aid, I think it was called. Um, hundred thousands of people, you know, it was a big fundraiser and they sang this song and they sang this. They said, we are the world, we are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. And they, they sing the song and, and while the video is videoing all these famous singers on the stage, Bob Dylan looks uncomfortable. He just looks uncomfortable. He's like, I just don't, this doesn't feel right. And so they ask him, like, why did you look so uncomfortable singing the song? He goes, because mankind can't make it brighter. Mankind's so broken. Mankind can't save the world. And what he was saying was just the meaning of Christmas, is that there's nothing that this world can do to manufacture the light. It has to be discovered, and his name is Jesus. And what I love about uh, candlelight, because you have me my candle right there, I think it's on the backpack. Thanks, homie. Um, what I love about Christmas is it reminds us that we're never supposed to manufacture the light. That we're never supposed to manufacture our hope. We're never supposed to manufacture some fake joy, but actually we're supposed to discover it every day because his mercies are new every morning. That there's infinite facets of God every day to learn about how great he is, how kind he is, how powerful he is, how much he loves you, how much he hates sin, all of the above. And so when we light a candle, it really is in the midst of a dark bay region, there will be a great light. Because what's amazing about our Jesus is that he passed the baton of being the light of the world to his church. He called the church to be the light of the world. Again, you don't define yourself. You may not feel very bright, but he's calling you bright. You may not feel like you're the light of the world, but he's calling you the light of the world. If you guys wanna stand up with me, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna light some candles by flipping a switch. When you're a mobile church, you can't have real candles. You're not allowed to burn down the school. It's, it's, it's one of the rules. Um, A lot of you are gonna to go to lunch afterwards. It's gonna be awesome. You're gonna have a great lunch. You're gonna have a great time. Excited about that. I'm excited to go eat some food. And you're gonna have what I call a waiter. Let's use this word. You're gonna have somebody who's gonna be a server for you. They're gonna be a server. If you don't have a candle, just raise your hand up. We have some people that can help you get a candle if you need a candle. Perfect. I don't know how we're gonna find you because it's dark, but by faith, we will walk towards you. Usher's like, where God? Okay, over here, yes. Um, but you're gonna go to lunch. You're gonna go to lunch and you're gonna order something. And let's say you order a steak, mashed potatoes. I'm going hard to the pan right now. Not any steak, let's go filet. Maybe a ribeye, that's my wife's favorite, okay? Um, and some mashed potatoes and iced tea. And the server comes back and throws on your table some tacos and a Sprite. I mean, can you, you'd have like one of these like double takes, like, I didn't order tacos or a Sprite. I ordered steak and iced tea. And the server's like, oh, whatever, just deal with it. It's not a big deal. Just eat the tacos. You're welcome. It'd be the worst restaurant on the planet. You probably wouldn't go back to that restaurant. Can we agree with this? I believe what it makes the church so attractive is that when God says, give the world a love they've never seen, and we give them a love they've never seen, not a preference of religion, 
I think the world is really attracted to a church that gives them grace that they've never really experienced because grace is something to be experienced more than it is even to be talked about. When the world is dying for kindness and real relationship and real community, the church gives them real community and real relationship. And God said that the opinions would not change the world, but servants would change the world. You'll see this throughout his, his gospels. And so I believe the Lord orders us as a church to be the light of the world and to go out of these walls. And I love this. A year and 10 months ago, Mission Church wasn't even a church. Like the Lord, the, 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 the way the church is described in Revelation, is like a lampstand, it's being lit. And now last week, we had over a thousand salvations for the first time at our church. A thousand people got saved, come on. That's an amazing thing at Mission Church. That means a thousand people who did not know a light discovered a great light, who didn't know a hope discovered a great hope, who didn't know about this thing called joy and promise and provision and value discovered a great provision and plan and value and his name is Jesus. So today when you leave church, man, give people what God asked you to give them. Don't just give them whatever you think you should give them. Give people love today. Give people generosity today. Give them your ear today. Mourn with those who mourn today. Become the light of the world. And again, here's what's so cool. When people say, hey, so where's your temple? You can tell we can be anywhere and everywhere. We are mobile as all get out. Holy Spirit lives in me now. This temple is mobile. You can't contain this temple. You can't contain this movement. The tabernacle dwells in me now. This is an amazing meaning of Christmas. Will you guys raise your candles with me? 300 and something candles lifted up. And I believe that's 300 and something new hopes for people. 300 uh, new opportunities for a dark world to encounter somebody through your life, through your kindness, through your joy. Raising your candle is actually saying yes to a responsibility more than anything else and thanking God for what he did in your life. Do you hear me this morning? So God, with every candle raised, Lord, we, we raise them up and say, use us. Use us to uh, light up a dark Bay Area with different philosophies of how they can make it better. Lord, the only way that we make this place better is through you and through your power and through your Holy Spirit. So Father, with every candle raised, we say, use Mission Church. We thank you that you came as a baby in a manger in such a humble way, and then died a death we should have died, lived the life we should have lived, and then conquered something we never could have conquered. So Father, we lift our candles with joy. We lift them with thankfulness. We lift them with new hope that this next year, 2020, that the end of 2019, it does not define our life. You define our life. Lord, we love you. We love you. And everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.